0: Good morning. morning! Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of coming and studying. We thank you for your love. We thank you so much for the way you run your universe. We thank you for the principles that you have created reality to run upon. We ask that you will join us today, enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you, that we can be more effective in living your, your methods in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing Lesson 13 in our quarterly uh, Genesis, and the uh, title today is Israel and Egypt, and before we get into the, to the lesson, I do want to follow up and just clarify a point from last week's lesson. Uh, how many were here last week? Did anything happen in class? Uh, anything we talked about disturb anybody last week? We talked about the, uh, the, the um, examples of Bible prophets, maybe not always uh, speaking with exact uh, clarity and truth, maybe, maybe misrepresenting facts, uh, maybe even lying a little bit. The, do you remember those stories? Did it make anybody uncomfortable? Well, as I thought about it and reflected on it this week, I thought, well, maybe I wasn't clear, um, in in the point and why I brought this up. Okay? And, and the point of, of last week's lesson is the stories like Nathan going to King David and telling the story of a, of a poor man with one little ewe lamb and, uh, and representing as a rich man taking it and slaughtering it to, to feed his friends when they came for a party. That, that historically didn't happen. That was a made up story and the example of the uh, prophet who confronts King Ahab on the way back after being wounded and claiming that he was uh, in the war when he wasn't, these types of misrepresentations. Um, These people, if you understand them, these were stories either told like Nathan or acted out like the one with Ahab that were designed to illustrate or bring truth to light. The story of Nathan to David, brought to light the deception David was telling to himself. It brought truth out into the open. You could think of them as acted out analogies or parables or metaphors or examples. Same thing with Ahab. You're the man. uh, You're the one I told you to do that. You didn't do what I said. And it brought the deception that they were doing to themselves out into the open by telling these stories. And that was the point. Rather than obscuring truth, or bearing false witness, they were designed to bring the truth into the open, into the minds of the people that needed to see it. And that's what the purpose of them were for. So I just want to clarify that. How do we as common people find that out for ourselves without listening to you? (laughs) Romans 14. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. You understand the principles of God. You think functionally. You think, okay, so, so I'm glad you brought that up because some people approach Scripture. The Bible said it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. And I read in Deuteronomy 14 this week, where God, God himself telling the people, take your tithe, buy fermented wine, and come and celebrate before the Lord. And so we should go buy fermented wine and bring it into our cellar. We could have probably a more joyous time, right? Because the Bible said it. Why shouldn't we do it? Because we actually think through what was happening, and we think through the reasons, we think through what's going on. There's many things in Scripture. And so one p- approach to Scripture is we find a rule, we find a statement, we find a directive, we find a claim, and we, and we copy it. Another is to understand what was happening and why would this be occurring? Why would Nathan represent something that happened that didn't happen? Why would the one prophet go to Ahab and pretend that he had been wounded in war when he wasn't wounded in war? What was the purpose of that? What was the outcome? And it requires a deeper, deeper order of thinking, and thus the mature, it says in Hebrews, are those who develop by practice the ability to discern right and wrong. We have to have a certain understanding of God's principles and how they work, and the principles of love and truth are seeking always to restore into harmony with God's principles rather than rule-keeping. If you do rule-keeping, you will almost always, if not always, end up in a position where keeping rules violates God's law and hurts people. And you could think, can't can't you? As soon as I said, can't you think of examples of people who are keeping rules that did them to the injury of people? You can't. Okay. Oh, with Jesus. Okay. So rule keeping. We approach the Bible as rule keeping. We will almost always end up on the wrong side of God's kingdom. Rules are. That means rules have no place. No. What's the what's the Bible teach about the purpose of rules? Galatians three. God added law because it was needed for a schoolmaster or a teacher to lead us to Christ. Children, the immature. So in Hebrews 5, you ought to be on meat, but you're still on milk, because those on milk are not acquainted with the teachings of righteousness. Let's not lay again the foundations of the elementary basic stuff, repentance of acts that lead to death. The rules. Let's not lay the rules again. That's for children. Children need them. Children need a rule to brush their teeth. Hopefully nobody in this room needs a rule to brush their teeth. But children do. And so we have to mature in our thinking to understand. And if we don't, then we look at stuff like this. And this was the, the reason I pointed this out last week, because many people look at the question of, quote, lying as a rule. And they think the Bible says thou shalt not lie. And they took a look at lying as factually not stating things exactly as they are in objective reality. Therefore, Nathan lied when he talked to, to David. That's a rule approach. No, Nathan told a metaphorical story that wasn't actually true in history in order to bring into David's mind the truth of what David had done. So why, uh, now we're Israel and Egypt, lesson 13. Why did God lead them to Egypt? Why? When I say lead, lead Jacob and his family. He led them down to Egypt. There was a famine. There was a famine. Okay, he led them. Okay, sure. Immediately, there was a famine. And God had no ability to actually provide um, flour in a jar every day and oil just for that day when there was a famine in the land. He has no ability to do that. Elijah didn't have anything like that happen in a famine in the land. God uh, provided every day the food they need. So, So he had to lead them to Egypt because there was a famine. Yeah, well, they needed to be in a place to grow. Oh, oh, interesting. Say more on that. Well, they produced and they reproduced and and they grew as a nation there and were prosperous. Oh, I like where you're going with that. So think this through. When they went to Egypt, according to Scripture, Jacob brought his family down. How many were there? Seventy men plus the wives and the hired hands, the servants. So a few hundred people, probably. Seventy men, their wives, and their, and their servants. A few hundred people. A few hundred people in Canaan to all the nation states and city states and kings that are ruling. And you read about those kings uh, with Abraham who went out and remember his, his uh, nephew Lot got taken. So there's these, there's these little municip- municipalities and powers that armies and so forth going around. How, how much of a threat are a few hundred people to organizations like that? They're not much of a threat. A few hundred people, probably don't even notice them. How much of a drain on the natural resources of the land, the the water, the grazing, the farmland, would a few hundred people be? Not much of a drain. What about a group of several million? How much of a threat? How much of a drain? So is it likely Jacob's family in Canaan would have been able to grow into the size of several million people without conflict and attack by the various nation-states as they started to grow. Or is it like they would have come under attack? But by going to Egypt, they're now under the official umbrella of the most powerful nation in the world. And they're put in the the section of Egypt that is the most fertile in the Goshen, where they were able to grow without being assaulted or attacked. And even when a new pharaoh came along, who did not remember Joseph, did they view the Hebrew people as enemies to be destroyed or as assets to be grown? Assets. No, they didn't. They, grew, they, they viewed them as cattle or sheep, slaves. slaves. They're a workforce to be grown and nurtured, not treated as human beings necessarily with respect, but they certainly didn't want to kill them all. They wanted to protect them because this workforce could get a lot done for them at very low labor costs. So even when a new pharaoh came, they protected the people and they continued to grow and get bigger. So maybe this is a, a reason why God led them to Egypt. To then grow. So they could grow. Until they were ready to be led out by God to take over the land. The last paragraph states that the fact, however, that Israel dwells in exile in Egypt as strangers is in tension with the hope of the promised land. The Bible, as we've talked about, is not only a historical document that records the lives of real historical people who did real things, but it's an object lesson that teaches a larger reality. The promised land that the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, went and occupied and possessed is a symbol of our heavenly promised land, the earth made new. And Egypt, where they were held captive, is symbolic of a world of sin in which we're held captive in sin. And, and God led them out of Egypt to possess the prophets, and He's going to lead us out of this world of sin to inherit the earth. It's, it's an object lesson as well as historical reality. Sunday's lesson, last two paragraphs, states this truth will become more evident only Many years later, after the cross and the full revelation of the plan of salvation, which, of course, was for all humanity everywhere and not just for the children of Abraham. In other words, however interesting the stories are regarding the the family, the seed of Abraham, and whatever spiritual lessons we can, can take from them, these accounts are in the word of God because they are a part of salvation history. They are part of God's plan to bring redemption to as many as possible on this fallen planet. I think that's well said. This is, this is why these stories are here. The, the focus of scripture is after Adam's fall, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is promised to come and crush the serpent's head and provide salvation. So the whole testament is the focus on the coming Messiah, the plan of salvation. The New Testament focuses on Jesus' first, first four books while he's here and what he's doing. After Jesus' ascension, the, the, shift, the focus shifts away from the Hebrew people who are the biological avenue through which Messiah will be born to those who took the message of Jesus forward, which is the plan of salvation forward. And Bible prophecy that extends past the time of Jesus focuses on the people uh, and the conflict who are taking the gospel message forward. That's the whole focus of Scripture. And in Monday's lesson, if we turn to Monday's lesson, it asks us to read Genesis 47. And what lessons now with this idea that this is not only history, but it's object lesson, teaching the plan of salvation. So let's read Genesis 47. I'll read out of the remedy. And and, and I'm going to be asking you, well, what lessons do we take from this? Uh, Joseph went to Pharaoh and told him, My father and brothers, along with the flocks and herds and all they possess, have come from Canaan... And are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh asked him, what is your occupation? They answered, we are humble servants. We, we, your humble servants, have tended livestock our entire lives just as our fathers did. They also said to him, we have come to live here in Egypt for a while because the famine is so severe in Canaan that our flocks and herds have no pasture. So please grant your humble servants permission to live in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am so happy that your father and brothers have come to you here in Egypt. You are my governor over all all Egypt, so settle your father and brothers in the land you deem best for them. Let them live in Goshen, if that is what you think is best. And if any of them are competent, skilled, and trustworthy like you, put them in charge of my own livestock. Mm -hmm. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, in and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh then asked him, how old are you? we just sang happy birthday to somebody turning 80. (laughs) How old are you? Jacob told Pharaoh, I have traveled the road of life for 130 years. But my life has been filled with hardship and heartache, and my life journey will not be be as long as those of my ancestors. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh once more and left his presence. Joseph gave his family, his father and brothers, the best land in Egypt, settling them in the region of Ramses, just as Pharaoh has, had directed. Joseph provided everything his father and brothers and their families needed, including plenty of food for every member of his father's household. The famine was so severe that there was no food anywhere in the entire region. The people and the animals of both Egypt and Canaan were starving because of the famine. Joseph, by selling the grain, encouraged the people to procure only what they needed But eventually he collected all the money he found in Egypt and Canaan, and he secured the money in Pharaoh's palace. With no more money in either Egypt or Canaan, the people came to Joseph and said, we are starving and have no more money, so please give us food or else we will die before your very eyes. Joseph said to them, since your money is gone, transfer ownership of your livestock to Pharaoh in exchange for food. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. In this way, Joseph provided them food sufficient for another year. The people came to Joseph the following year and said, Lord governor, we, you, well know, you well know that we have no money and all our livestock now belong to the crown. All we have left is our land and our bodies. Why should we starve to death and our land become desolate when you have food to feed us? Buy us and our land in exchange for food and we will be Pharaoh's serfs. We will occupy and work Pharaoh's land in exchange for food. So give us grain that we may live and that our land does not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in in Egypt for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian was forced to sell their land because the famine was so severe, was too severe for them to survive otherwise. And all the land became Pharaoh's. Thus Joseph made the people across the entire land of Egypt serfs to Pharaoh. However, this did not include the priests. Joseph did not buy their land because they received a regular allotment of food from Pharaoh sufficient to sustain them. Thus, the priests did not sell their land. After buying the land, Joseph set these terms with the people. Now that I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh, here is seed for you to plant and work the land. When the harvest comes, one-fifth will be returned to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths will be yours to use for seed to replant your fields as food for you and your families. Thankful, the people said, we have found favor in your eyes and you've saved our lives, Lord Governor. Notice, thankful, thankful. We have saved us, Lord Governor. We will be Pharaoh's serfs. So Joseph made it a law on the land of Egypt that one-fifth of the harvest belongs to Pharaoh. The law remains in effect today, to this day. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. And so it, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They prospered, acquired land, flourished, and greatly increased in number. Jacob lived another 17 years. 147. After moving to Egypt, well, I think about that at my age. <laughs> you think, think, guys, if you had, a, whatever your age is, you, you got another up to 147. Wow, Take out a second mortgage? <laughs> Jacob lived another 17 years after moving to Egypt. He lived to be 147 years old. When Israel's death drew near, he called for his son, Joseph, and said to him, If you honor me as your father, place your hand beneath my upper thigh and thereby symbolically place yourself under the witness of my future descendants and promise me that you will love me and act kindly to me in this. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I sleep in death... With my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you've said, Joseph replied. But Jacob said, swear a sacred oath to me that you will do it. So Joseph swore a sacred oath, promising his father that he would do as he said. Relieved, Israel bowed his head in thanks to the Lord while leaning on top of his staff. So what do you think of the story? Object lesson. What do we learn from the story? he lived a long time. (laughs) He lived a long time. Egypt represents this world of sin. Joseph represents in this world of sin somebody who came into this world of sin. Who does he represent? Jesus. In this world of sin, there is a famine for truth, a famine for God's love, and all humans are starving for it. Just like there was a famine in the land. Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. The bread has come down from heaven. They had to purchase the food to save them with all they valued. Will we trust Jesus completely as long as we trust something other than Jesus to save us? No. So Jesus counsels us, and I'll read to you the words out of Revelation 3.18 to the church of Laodicea. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover the shameful, your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. They had to buy from Joseph the food to save their life with everything they had. Nothing left of value in order to survive. We are told to buy from Jesus the gold, the white raiment, and the eyesav. What are we buying with? And yeah, we're we buying with money? No. This is the barter method. They bought, initially, they gave up their money, but then they actually gave up their property and their cattle and ultimately themselves. We have to surrender ourselves to Christ. And we exchange this sinful life for his righteous life. This terminal existence, this dead and trespassing sin, as the Bible said, this life that is destined to die for his immortal life our guilt and shame for his peace and joy. It's an exchange. You can't hold on to sinful self and, and receive a new heart and a right spirit. The old has to die and the new has to rise. And that's a metaphor. And so that was what the lesson that was acted out in his history the people of Egypt. The lesson states in regard to the Hebrews moving into the land, and this is a, a quote out of the lesson, wisely, too, Pharaoh does not encourage these sojourners to become beggars, living off the largesse of their host. He inquires about their occupation in order that they may adjust better to their new environment. If they are... Reliable, hard workers, trustworthy. Let them tend my cattle as well, my livestock. Is there a spiritual lesson here for us today? What is the godly approach to charity or government support programs for the needy? The godly approach. How does Satan pervert the godly and compassionate desire to help others in need into programs that rather than helping, rather than uplifting and benefiting, actually harm and injure those intended to be benefited. How does he do that? How does he get good people to actively pursue programs with the goal to help but when the programs go into place they actually injure those that are the objects to be helped how does he do that? Just, if you don't think it's happening just look around the world Yes, we have to give um, service for our, it's for our own benefit he's asking the Jews to give their talents and gifts and that's for their own benefit. Oh, I love what you're saying. And that's the Christian principles, one of love, beneficence, helping others. The law of love is giving. But in order to give in a way that's actually beneficial, there are some things that are required. Requirements in order to actually have benefit to others. Motive isn't enough to actually benefit. There's something required, several things required. One, you must be in a position to actually help. You must have an ability or a means or a resource that could be a benefit. You can have a motive to help, but if you have no ability to provide what was needed, for instance, you may have somebody with a, a cancer and you have a heart desire to cure their cancer, but you have nothing to cure their cancer with, your desire to help isn't going to be a help in curing the cancer. You have to have an ability. Isn't it true? You have to have a resource. You have to have something that can help. Number one, you have to be equipped. But but let's say you are. Somebody is in poverty. And you have money. What else is needed besides a desire and a resource? Something else is needed to help. Because if you have desire and a resource, but you don't have the next one, that's where Satan traps people into helping and initiating programs that actually harm What's next needed? Wisdom. Actually understanding what is wrong, what the problem is, or accurately diagnosing the issue. This requires understanding of design law. Understanding where the person who is struggling is actually out of harmony with how God has constructed life to operate. Because only in harmony, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving, bringing life to the soul. Only harmonizing with, with, you can call them the laws of health, but it's the laws that God built right, life upon. Oh, that's the only way to actually help people. So if we take an intervention with resources that, from a heart, motivated to bless, with resources that could be a blessing, but implementing those resources actually push the and further out of harmony with God's design, we injure, we harm, we don't help. Does that make sense to people? So thinking strategically, if you were Satan, if Satan could get good people to pursue helping others by implementing his methods that might benefit somebody temporarily in earthly ways, but simultaneously simultaneously harm them spiritually in eternal ways, would he advance such a program? Sure. Let's help people temporarily in earthly ways, but this very intervention will spiritually harm them and make it harder for them to find salvation. Would he, would he advance such a program? Can you think of examples of people motivated to help they intervene with things that may help, something situationally, but actually harm people eternally. Stimulus, check. Stimulus checks? Okay. I, I was going to say, we just received a whole bunch of money from the government for COVID. Instead of actually healing the issue or letting people know how to avoid it, they promoted it. So we in psychiatry, there's a, there's a term, maybe you've heard of this term, anybody heard of this term, enabling? when we focus on relieving the consequence of destructive behavior rather than helping them overcome the destructive behavior. So a person's got a cocaine addiction, and they're spending their rent money or their food money on cocaine, and then they call you up and say, hey, I don't have any money for rent this this month. Well, what happened? Oh, well, I, I, I blew it all on cocaine. And you give them money. To relieve their financial pressure, are you helping them? But, but, I, but I love them and I want to help. I want to help. And they're suffering. I want to help. This is an example of intervening with resources you have that can relieve a situational circumstance but actually can perpetuate the addiction and harm. The story of the prodigal son illustrates this quite nicely. When the prodigal took his inheritance, went into wild living, blew it all, ends up poverty, living with pigs and eating the pig slop. This is a Jewish boy, so think where pigs are on that scale. So it's about as low as you can go. Why? Why didn't the father, who's still wealthy, father's still wealthy, man of means, Lots of resources, lots of servants, lots of agents working for him. Why didn't the father send him some food vouchers, put him on a subsistence fund, put him up in a hotel? Uh, why didn't he uh, support him so he didn't have to eat pig slop? If he did, what would have been the likely outcome for the boy? Might he have said, "Hey, this is I'm getting by. I'm doing okay." What is it? When did he? The Bible says there's a certain point he came to his senses. He, he came to his senses. Where was he when he came to his senses? At the bottom. At the bottom. With the pigs. And that's what addicts will tell you is called hitting rock bottom. Yes. You've got to get out of the way of this and let people hit rock bottom. But don't you have any compassion? Didn't this father love his boy? Didn't he love him enough to intervene and keep him from eating pig slop? How cruel could his father have been? His and this is the society we live in, a society that doesn't understand reality, that looks only on the immediate, uh, relieving someone's immediate suffering rather than helping them address the internal problems that are destroying their lives. When the Bible says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, what does it mean? Do parents with three children and a limited income if they're going to be godly parents, do they are they required to prioritize their resources, their time, their money to fulfill their responsibilities to their own children even if that means not feeding homeless children in their city? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Don't they love those homeless children? Are they cruel and unchrist-like people? Shouldn't they actually give food to the homeless kids and let their own kids go hungry?: No, no. If there was a mass casualty incident in our community and there's a call for blood donations, it's an act of love to donate blood, yes. But should you limit how much you give personally? <laughs> And if you were a first responder, uh, uh, a fireman or a police officer who may be carrying the wounded and need your strength, what would it be a greater act of love to go ahead and donate and therefore you can't help or uh, care for these wounded or don't donate now because right now they need your strength to help deliver people from the tragedy? Did Jesus set limits on the time that he spent with needy people and needy crowds in order for him to rest recover and spend time with his father well didn't he love those hurting people they were needy and he abandoned them to to suffer another day without healing them how could he be so unloving (laughs) he had the resources he could have spent he could have gone an extra hour without sleep that night (laughs) if satan can't get good people to choose evil then as a means of neutralizing their impact for good he will tempt them to overextend themselves on good. Overcommit. To exhaust themselves, burn themselves out, cause themselves to become disabled so that somebody else will have to care for them. Thus removing them from the playing board on Christ's team. Is it love for a church to limit the amount of money it gives away to missions and feeding the poor? Is it loving for them to limit the amount they give away? Is it necessary for the organization to maintain its own health, financially speaking, so that it can stay in operations to help more people over time than to bankrupt themselves now? Yes. Talking about organization, helping others, our government... As a program where if you have COVID, they can help you with the rent. So a tenant I know, uh, she applied because she had COVID, they paid three months of her rent. Then after that, she applied again the same year for because she had another COVID illness, and they gave her another three months' rent. And now she's applied a third time for whatever reason, And they have approved her again. And so this organization is going to, they're using up their means. So what about our government? Would it be an act of love for our government to set limits on who the government helps? Like a parent should help their own children before the neighborhood, should the government help its own citizens who are actually keep paying their taxes to the government before they bankrupt themselves into trillions of debt to help the rest of the world. What about setting boundaries at a nation's border that regulates those coming into the country? Is it an act of love to do such a thing, or is it unchristian, unkind? Shouldn't we let anybody walk into the country at any time? What happens to the most vulnerable in a society with unregulated immigration? Do wages rise for the poorest with unregulated immigration? Would the social resources that our government has, such as Medicaid, low-cost housing, mental health treatment for for uh, programs, social support systems, student aid, would these be uh, more available or less available as we let millions and millions of people in to use those resources? Who gets? Who suffers the most? The wealthy or those greatest in need? Is it an act of love to allow this to happen? The first rule of caregiving, teach my patients this all the time, first rule, love your neighbor. First rule of caregiving is the health of the caregiver. If the caregiver doesn't have health, the caregiver not only can't help or give care, they need care themselves, so they take resources from other people. You can't provide care if you are unwell. First rule, health of the caregiver. That's why Christ took time away from the masses to maintain his own rest and time with his father. So what is the difference between the biblical method of helping people in need and the government's method of helping people in need? Is there a difference between the biblical method and the government's method? Here's the biblical method. The biblical method is based on love for others. The resources utilized are given freely from hearts that love and want to help others and are distributed in interpersonal relationships where we meet and care for people and help people in their time of need. This is the biblical method. Mm -hmm. And in that relationship, somebody knows that they are still valued and they're cared for. And in that relationship, as you're helping meet their monetary need or or health need, whatever it is, in real interpersonal contact, eventually there's opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and lead them not just out of a temporal suffering, but out of eternal soul suffering in relation with Jesus Christ. Hey, I'd love for you to come visit our church family to connect with a community that then can teach them a healthier way to live. And a person in that relationship has an ever-increasing likelihood of becoming self-sufficient, autonomous, developing their God-given individuality, becoming a thinker and a doer rather than a taker. Maturing and growing, discipling. This is the godly way of helping. And even when we provide resources for people, the biblical method is as far as possible providing opportunity for them to help themselves. Think of Ruth and Naomi. When Ruth and Naomi needed food, they did not have somebody shrub a check or a basket of food every day. They were able to clean the food without charge freely. Free food they had to go out and do the work to get it and then they had to thresh it and then they had to grind it and then they had to prepare it and then they had to cook it. We'll come back to that point in a moment. The human government method is to forcibly take from people who have nothing in their heart that they want to give in order to redistribute it to people in, in, in non personal ways, checks, deposit into accounts, no interpersonal contacts, no actual you're valued, no actual bring into community, no actual development of ability, no actual application of self, which destroys the soul, the individual, makes them less capable over time enfeebles people, which causes internal sense of inadequacy and guilt, which causes people to have to double down on their incapacities and therefore deserving needs, so they become more sick of various ways and more entitled and more angry when they don't get it. These two methods of helping people in need have significantly different impacts on all parties. The people who give out of love in the biblical model to help people in need, as was pointed out earlier, they are living love and they grow in love and grace and compassion and wisdom. The people who receive from that, they have a sense of being appreciated and valued. A sense of gratitude is often instilled in the heart. A desire to, to respond in kind. Love awakens love. Is a principle of God's kingdom. To do more, not less. So people tend to want to grow in response to a relationship where you're valued. The human method, the, the earthly method, causes resentment in those who are being taxed. Causes division instead of unity in society. Causes groups to fight against each other politically. Causes entitlement mentalities. Diminishes individual development, diminishes godly growth in character. That's what earthly governments do. Isn't giving can also be an ulterior motive? It's not from wanting to help people; it's wanting for others to perceive something about you okay so so you're pointing out now so we were talking about the the biblical method for actually helping people you're pointing out that people could do it from another method in other words people could give donations because they want to be perceived as somebody really good in their community so do from selfishness the government wants to be perceived by the rest of the world as, as the leaders in doing something so, so we can't judge the heart of somebody giving, but I was contrasting when you do give from a heart of love to be benefiting of others versus when it's taken from you. You've added in another layer though. How about when it's given from a heart of somebody in a church so that they can be valued by their organization and maybe nominated for a position to run the church board? Mm-hmm. Because they gave the most. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm that person will not get the growth and maturity of character. But if that money still goes into the church and is utilized by people in the church to distribute in individual relationships, maybe not by the person who donated it, but by other people in the church who can now use that money, then God's principles can still be lived out and reach people for the kingdom. Regarding the the government wanting to be looked good, human governments want power, and they want control. That's what they want. And the only concern they have about looking good is to the degree it helps them with more power and more control. If they can have more power and more control while looking bad, they don't really care. Look at uh, the government of North Korea. I don't think they really are trying to look good in the world. And many governments, totalitarian governments, um, uh, Stalin's government wasn't interested in looking good. But to the degree it's necessary in a circumstance to get more power and control, yes, people will do that. But I think the real motive there is not to benefit others; it's for, to benefit self. Yeah. For your safety. For your safety. Yeah. We're yeah. We're only here to help. Always, always have a red flag go up if somebody from the government comes and they're here to help. Remember, we talk about helping. A, there, that's an old joke, but it's true. Helping, true help. So I get people all the time in my office. I just want to help. I just want to help. I want to help my spouse. I want to help my children. I want to help my neighbor. I want to help. In order to help, you have to have the actual resources to help. But you actually also have to understand God's law, understand what the problem is, and and then understand the action you want to take. Does it actually help or does it enable harm? And sometimes the best help you can give somebody is to stay out of it. Truly, the best help you can give somebody is to stay out of it. And why is that the case? You have a, a child who is doing whatever. You pick, you pick your poison. But it's not healthy. They're doing something in their relationship. They're doing something in their finances. They're doing something with their body and the substances they put in. Whatever they're doing, but it's not healthy. And you get in the middle of it and try to manage it for them. I'll give you a metaphor for this. I'll give you a metaphor. And I, and I tell you, I see it happen all the time. Here's the metaphor. Your child is in the kitchen trying to bake a cake. The cake is the outcome of lots of ingredients going in in a certain way, baking, bringing out a, a, a product. This is their life. They're putting stuff into their life, trying to bring out a good product. They're in the kitchen baking a cake. But what they're putting in, they're putting in some uh, motor oil, putting in a little battery acid. Okay, that's what they're putting into their cake. And you recognize that is not going to be a good cake. So you come over and you put a little flour in, put a little baking soda, maybe a little sugar while they're putting in the the, uh, little asbestos, okay? (laughs) Now, regardless of what you put in, if they're putting this other stuff in, how's this cake going to turn out? (laughs) It's going to turn out toxic, horrible. And when it does, because you are putting stuff in, guess who gets blamed for the outcome? If you would have kept your hands out of my cake, I would have had a good cake. It's your fault. You did this. <laughs> it happens over and over again. You start messing in people's lives who don't want to take responsibility, even though what you're doing might be actually objectively beneficial from what they were doing. When it goes wrong, and it always will, not from what you're doing, but from what they're doing, they will not look in the mirror and say, wow, if only I had kept all this garbage out. No, it, 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 you will be to blame. This is why the prodigal's father did not intervene with the boy. Because if he would intervened with the boy after he left home, the boy would have blamed the dad. If you'd left me alone, you wouldn't have been intervening. I wouldn't be in this. You did this. You messed up. You messed me up. You were always trying to manage things for me. This is why you have to let it go until they're ready to take ownership. So Ruth and Naomi, they had their real need But notice the method, the method and how it worked for them. Some of God's laws are involved here. They had to go out and exercise. They had to apply themselves. Understand, in Eden before sin, in addition to marriage, in addition to the Sabbath that God gave them before sin, he gave them something else. Work. Tend the garden work to do human beings are created in the image of god he is the creator and we are designed in his image as creators as beings in our sphere who can build who are industrious who have creative capacities who design things who work in addition to just bringing children to the world we can create things in our environment we are designed to be industrious it's part of our our, our wiring way god constructed us and when we engage ourselves in useful activity to be productive, whether it has a paycheck or not, it may not be a paycheck. That's not the point. It's doing something objectively useful in one's world. Homemaker, raising kids, keeping a garden in your own yard, so forth and so on. You, something useful in your world, there is a sense of personal achievement, development, validation, movement uh, forward in your own sense of confidence, developing of your capacities, all things. So regular work benefits us in multiple ways. Here's some of the ways regular work benefits us. improve self-esteem from actual accomplishment and actual achievement. Better physical health from increased physical activity, reduced stress firing in our brain pathways because we are more satisfied with our life and what we're doing with our life. We have less guilt and less shame. We don't feel as lazy, so we don't activate our stress circuits as much. We have lower uh, inflammatory cascades because we're useful, and that results in better physical health. We also activate healthy neurons and neural circuits in our brain which develops uh, healthy brain pathways. and, And the very motor circuits that initiate movement are the circuits that initiate thinking. This is why people with Parkinson's disease, who have dysfunction in the, or dying out of the circuits that initiate motor movement, often when they're not on their meds and they're stiff in motor movement, their thoughts become real sluggish because the same circuits that initiate both—it's hard for them to think and get their thoughts going. The cerebellum, which organizes fluid, motor, uh, fluid and organized choreographed. Movement makes it smooth. Uh, the central portion of the cerebellum organizes our thoughts, and so as we develop our physical abilities and practice them, we have not only better thinking but better organization in our thinking. Physical labor and work does this for us. Physical work, or engaging in useful activity blesses and benefits those around us, improves our environment. Whether we're creating art or music and brightening hearts, whether we're mopping and vacuuming and cleaning, it it betters our environment and improves our community. Reduces burdens on others. By staying active, we reduce the likelihood that we become disabled. Active people who volunteer in their community as they age, have less disability, less um, dementia, less physical sickness, stay out of nursing homes longer, and live longer than people who are not actively engaged in, in some type of altruistic activity in their community. <clears throat> Reduces the opportunity for temptation. You ever heard the idle hands or the devil's workshop? If you're engaged in useful activity, that time is not available to be engaged in destructive activity it reduces the time that you can be available for that but sitting around with nothing to do you get bored it opens the mind and the desires up to do things that are destructive so it's protective to be engaged in useful activity when we pay people to be useless we increase their uselessness And we diminish their capacities. We weaken their, their individuality, weaken their thinking, weaken their brain development. And they then go down pathways of ever increasing self-indulgence and entertainment and self-soothing of various kinds. Further, if we're paying them for their disability, the way we're designed, most people have a conscience. And most people would feel guilty taking something they don't, in their own mind, believe they deserve. And therefore, if you're being paid to be sick, then you need to be... If you're paid for disability, you need to be... And so being paying people for sickness and disability gets more sickness and disability. They need to be this way to avoid the guilt. And if they know they're getting paid a monthly check for their disability, what would it mean if they were to actually get healthier and stronger and less disabled? What might they lose? Well, they can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So it's an obstacle to actual achievement, whereas don't, charitable giving in the way God designed it does, is not that obstacle. Because it's in design the relationship, and they're getting affirmation, they're getting recognition, they're they're giving opportunity, they're being able to develop themselves. They're maybe given a little task to do in, in the community that that is helping them. And it doesn't—it's not an obstacle. They want to get rid of their—they want to get stronger. It's a completely different dynamic. And so the Bible, the Bible writer Paul writes in Second Thessalonians three ten, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Any comments or questions about that? You understand what, what I just went through? Application of biblical principles, design law, how reality works, that must be understood if you want to help people. If you want to help people out of a compassionate heart, and you see them in need, and you're just going to hand them dollars you're oftentimes not helping, you're harming. But then you're accused by the government not loving people if you don't help what their programs are. Yep. And who's the accuser of the brethren? Yeah, Satan. Satan. And all, and all nations of the earth are? Saints. Satan's. It's not surprising that we would have those accusations coming from human governments because human governments do not represent the kingdom of God. No. They all are, operate on rules and rules will always end up harming people. In some way, in some time, in some fashion. Once, though, because I heard someone in Congress, they said, oh, you want to kill babies, you know, or you want to kill kids. Because they didn't like the program that uh, they were going to present. And so it's, it's hard sometimes. Only if you don't understand the principles. Oh, yeah, I mean, you understand it, but they don't. That's right. That's the problem. And so, so what makes it hard, and this is the problem, folks, what makes it hard is when the children are in charge. Seriously, I see families in terrible distress when the children have been able to run the parents. When the children with their tantrums and their anger outbursts and their complaints and their this, that, and the other, and the parents are helpless and they don't... You won't be mad at daddy if daddy says no, will you? That, that, chaos. Destruction. And when we have people running the show in any system that don't actually understand objective reality, God's design. Worse, there is no God. In fact, yes, there are laws involved. The law of survival the fittest. The strong should survive. Uh, ends justify the means. We want power. We want control. And it doesn't matter if we need to lie, cheat to get it. That's right. We should do it. It doesn't matter false allegations. We know you didn't do it. But we just want to blame you for it to smear your name so you won't get elected. And we will. That's the world in which we live. Hmm. So uh, Jacob blesses, uh, we're going to uh, Tuesday's lesson. Mm-hmm. Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons, elevating them from the position of grandsons to the position of sons. They inherit full portions. Same as the rest of the other sons. That's what they inherit. And they, got, and they did this because Joseph is firstborn. Firstborn gets two shares. All the other born get one share of the inheritance. Joseph, firstborn, gets two shares, and so his two sons were elevated, and his two sons' names were Manasseh and Ephraim. And this is why you hear the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim treated in the same as the other tribes, Asher and Dan and Judah and Reuben, because they have equal status. But wait a second. Thank you, Tina. Why? Her, If you couldn't hear, but he wasn't firstborn. And this goes exactly to the, the, the same type of point we were making last week about lying. There is objective fact who was born first, which was Reuben. And then there is the position of firstborn. And the position of firstborn is not about who was actually born first. The position of, the position, the position of firstborn is not about who was born first. It's not about birth order. It's about who has the title of firstborn for inheritance purposes. It's a position, not a birth order. So, who was the first child of Abraham's that was born into the world? Who was the firstborn? Ah, there you go. See, Ishmael, the first one, born into the world, but Isaac was firstborn. The inheritance went through Isaac, not through Ishmael. The promise went through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn over all creation. Is that, and some will use that to say, see, he's created being. He's less than the father. He's not a fully god. He's a demigod. No, they're thinking like this. They're thinking, like, well, well, Joseph wasn't firstborn, so how can he be firstborn? It's very concrete. Because they don't understand firstborn is a title or a position. And the position is a position of authority and inheritance. Who inherits the kingdom of God for us? Jesus is the firstborn over creation. It's a position of authority and power. That's what it is. So the Father can choose the firstborn? Uh, yes, it, it, it certainly can. So. In, and so why was Joseph, though, chosen as firstborn? I think there's two reasons. First, from Jacob's heart, soul, vision, desire, plan, and purposes, who was Jacob's chosen wife? And who was the firstborn to Rachel? So Joseph's heart and Jacob's heart, Joseph was always the firstborn of his wife regardless of all the other children he had before him. I think that's one reason. But there's another reason that's actually more important in this case. What character did Joseph manifest and develop? And thus he was positioned to carry the firstborn title of the patriarchal family through whom the gospel goes to the world because of his character. There's also another reason beyond this in the object lesson aspects. Remember, real historic people doing real historic stuff and there's another reason that they were elevated to the position of sons. So once they're elevated to the position of sons by Jacob, how many now in position, operating position, how many sons does Jacob have now? Fourteen. Mm-hmm. Jacob. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So J- Joseph, though, Joseph's position is replaced by the two. So Joseph's position is p- replaced by Ephraim, and so that, that makes... Thirteen. There are thirteen tribes now. So where does Judah been in? I thought the line was through Judah. Yeah, yeah the, the line for the Messiah is through Judah, but the firstborn here. So this wasn't firstborn in that the Messiah would come through you. Okay? This is firstborn in that inheritance from Jacob's estate goes through. Okay? But in the object lesson now, remember the object lesson when they, when they camp around the, the sanctuary uh, after they come out of Egypt? There's the sanctuary, and the sanctuary is symbolic of the plan of salvation, uh, at one minute in the very center, at unity with God. Uh, the 12 tribes outside now, three on each side, symbolic north, east, west, south, north, south, east, west. Okay? People from all walks of the world represented in those 12 tribes, and between them and, and unity with God is another group. Who's that? And the Levites represent who? Experience. priesthood of believers, those who already know God. So we, the priesthood of believers, are to go out into the world to bring all the people of every nation, kindred, tribe, and people back into unity with God as his witnesses. This was acted out theatrically in the way the whole thing was set up. I wish I had time to go into more, but we're already over. And I was going to read to you uh, Genesis 49, where Jacob... Uh, boy, man, I don't know if you take the time. I'm going to do it. Um, let's let's look, at Je- let's look at Genesis 49. This is where Jacob blesses his sons and, uh, and see what happens here in Genesis 49. This is out of the remedy. It says, Then Jacob called his sons before him and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to your descendants in the days to come. Gather together and listen, you sons of Jacob. Take heed to what your father Israel has to tell you. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Not firstborn position, firstborn in the world. Okay. Recipient of my strength and first manifestation of my procreative power. Destined to lead my sons. The greatest in power. That's, that's, that's his position coming into the world. But you lost control of yourself and your passion boiled over like water. And so you will not be the greatest and will not lead. For you presume to usurp your father's bed and you defiled it. Yes, you went up on my couch. You know the story there. Simeon and Levi are brothers, two of a kind. Their lives are instruments of violence. May I never be part of their conspiracies. May my name never be connected to their company. For in anger, they have murdered innocent men and taken pleasure in maiming and abusing animals. These are antisocials. Their merciless anger is a curse. Their indiscriminate rage is cruel. Cruel. I will break up their violent union by spreading them among the people and dilute their influence by dispersing them throughout Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise your power, and your 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 power, your father's stiff-necked enemies will bow before your son. Oh, Judah, you are like a lion with victory. My son, you will rise up, but you will become like an old lion, stooped and bent. You will a. Ar- uh, Who will who will arouse you? But the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from your descendants until Shiloh, the remedy for sin, comes and cleanses the people. He will be like a donkey of peace tied to a vine of humanity, a colt bound to the chosen branch. His garments of character will be washed in new wine. His robes of righteousness will with blood like crushed grapes. His eyes will sparkle like wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the coast and have ships with borders to Sidon. Issachar is like a strong, hard-working donkey that, strives, uh, that finds rest between the burdens of life. For the reward of a comfortable home and a peaceful land, your descendants will carry many burdens and be slaves to their own ambitions. Dan likes to rule over others and will seek to be first among the tribes of Israel. The descendants of Dan will be like a crafty serpent beside the road, like a, a viper that strikes at the horse 's heel and causes a rider to fall backward. Their words will mislead and cause the people to stumble backward. Oh, how I look forward to your healing, your creation, you healing your creation, O oh Lord, Gad, your descendants will not seek conquest, but when attacked by raiders, will attack back to drive them away. From Asher will come rich foods. His descendants will provide food for, fit for kings. Naphtali, you are like a deer running free, reveling in sharing the beauty of life. Joseph is my fruitful son, like a fruitful vine near a life-giving well. His branches are like a protective wall. Those over whom attack, those over him attacked him, They shot their arrows of bitterness and resentment to destroy him. But he is like a bow that bends under pressure and then reverses the assault. His power was strengthened by the hand of the mighty God of Jacob, protected and guided by the shepherd, the rock of Israel, helped by your father's God, blessed by the almighty creator God, blessed by the refreshing rains of heaven, blessed by the fruitfulness of the earth, blessed to produce and sustain life. The blessings of Jacob, your father, are greater than the blessings of my ancestors, enduring like the everlasting hills. Let all these blessings rest upon Joseph's head, upon the brow of the prince who has set apart, who, has, who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is like a ravenous wolf, devouring enemies in the morning and dividing plunder in the evening. These are the twelve tribes of Israel, and the blessing of their father spoken to them before he died. He gave each one the blessing that was right for them. I know it was done by character. But how did he know, like, Zebulun would live by the ocean and stuff like that? Was he envisioned and maybe to God? So this is where I wish we had time to go into the lesson further. (laughs) But I will say this. These were predictions based upon his reading of their characters and how they would raise their children both epigenetically and environmentally and what would likely happen from the outcome of their influence. But they were not fate. This was not fate. They were not fated to be this way. And how can I say that with 100% certainty? Levi. Levi was cursed to be, to, to, to never have power, but at the Exodus, at Sinai, Levi stood with God and redeemed themselves and became the priests. Okay, Meaning that despite our heritage and anything that we inherit from our family, every individual person still has individual choice. And the Levites then chose a different course because they never lost their liberty. And so this wasn't fate. This was a prediction based on what would likely happen unless descendants make different choices. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the inspiration of Scripture. We thank you for the beauty of your character. We thank you for your grace, mercy, and the way you work with us. We pray that you will give us wisdom, give us hearts not only compassionate and loving and willing to help, but give us and give us the resources and and, and um, uh, n- things necessary to help if called. But also give us wisdom to know what is needed in every circumstance that you call us to act upon so that we can be actually helpful in your kingdom and not harming those we're trying to help. We pray in your holy name. Amen.